and thanks for tuning in to 90,000 Hours. I'm your host and producer, Robin Landy. Today's episode features Andrew Kunza, who is a qualified intellectual disabilities professional living and working in Asheville, North Carolina. If you're enjoying the show, help other listeners find us by leaving a rating or review over at Apple Podcasts. Thanks to Eric Andrew Kuhn for the use of his music in this episode, and thank you for listening. I always find it weird, like when you meet someone for the first time, one of the first few questions beyond what's your name or why are you here is usually what do you do? I always found it to be really weird, especially before I got this job, I would just work whatever job sounded good or paid the most. I did not care. And I do think it's weird that like we do fixate on this idea. It's like, oh, your work will give you so much meaning. You'll eventually find the thing that's just for you you'll fit right in. And it's kind of like this whole notion of what I personally like to call like assembly line living, like this old kind of Fordist model where it's like, all right, you go through all the schooling. Then if you're of a certain intelligence, then you go to like college and then you get, you know, the fancy college job. However, like if you're just, you know, not good enough for college, then, you know, you work in a factory or you do some sort of like manual blue collar work, but the trajectory is the same. Like eventually, in your early 20s, you'll find your partner, you'll buy your house, you'll reproduce, you'll work until eventually you're 60-something, then maybe retire and enjoy 10 years of not working, if you're lucky. And like, of course, like obviously with neoliberalism, that's models all been shot. It doesn't work anymore. So it feels almost like offensive to me, to someone to be like, oh, you'll find your dream job out there. It's like, I just want a job where I can afford to not like have to worry about bills. I want a job where I have healthcare and don't get me wrong. The work I do now is very fulfilling. And honestly, like I would have a very hard time doing any other type of work right now, just because like, I find it so hard to work in anything outside of a sort of nonprofit because I know my labor is being exploited when I work for anything that's a for-profit business. I mean, it's so obvious, like that's a whole model, at least with the nonprofit. I know like, well, we only have X amount of money. And I can see what everyone else is getting paid. It's very transparent. And especially the one I work for right now is very ethical. They do pay people relatively well compared to industry standards. And the only reason why we can't pay people more is because there's not enough money. I don't make a whole lot of money, especially compared to other fields I could be doing. However, though, for me, like it's not so much like, oh, I found my dream job or whatever. It's more like I have found a job where I don't feel gross every day showing up to work. I don't feel exploited. I do feel like what I do actually benefits other people. And it's something that like I can do for the foreseeable future without having any sort of like conflict morally or ethically about what I'm doing. I know I'm trying my best. I know I'm doing what I can to help these people. I just don't think there's a dream job. I think that's kind of a myth. Personally, I would love to never work again. That would be lovely. I would love to have a lot of leisure time but no, we don't like exist in that world. It's very transparent how exploited we are. And I think the whole notion of like, oh, you'll just find your dream job. It's just, it's kind of gross. It's kind of like, yes, you'll find a position where yes, you're heavily exploited, but you'll like it. Setting where I work right now is mostly in group homes and in other residential facilities, apartment buildings, things like that. And all the people that we serve, they have 
IDD or some sort of cognitive issues or physical disability. And a typical day is probably close to impossible to think of because you're dealing with a lot of people and every day you walk in, there's something that's probably happened. So typically a day goes, I show up to work around eight, nine o'clock, and then I see what's happened and what needs to be addressed and who's having a problem today with what or whom. I have 13 clients on my caseload and yeah, every day they always surprise me with something new. With my caseload and all my clients, it runs the whole gambit of ability. We have some individuals who are nonverbal, need hand-over-hand assistance with pretty much all the acts of daily living, like showering up to feeding themselves. And then we have other individuals who are living in apartments, holding down jobs, engaging in the world at large, and they just need help with more big picture stuff like, oh, um, I need to make a doctor's appointment or I need to pay this bill. How do I do that online? So yeah, it's really the whole spectrum. And a lot of the individuals, they come into contact with my organization through a variety of ways. So we have a set amount of beds available. And right now we're at capacity. But if someone moves out or something else happens, then we have a bed available. And then other bigger state institutions they're always trying to move people out because the state of North Carolina is not allowing more group homes or larger ones to be built right now. So there is a huge lack of housing for these people. So a lot of the individuals we get, they either come into contact with us one of three ways. One, they're abandoned in the hospital and the hospital's calling around and they're like, hey, someone needs to go somewhere. Do you have a bed? Another way is usually people who have lived in the community for a long time, they have a family member who's their caregiver. And either they pass away or they're no longer able to care for them. And then some sort of social services will come into contact with them. And then they'll stay almost what I think people think of colloquially as like halfway houses. They're just kind of there until somebody finds a bed for them. And then the third way is an institution where the institution's like, hey, we have this person who's a candidate for needing less services and they don't need like 24-hour care like a state mental hospital would provide. Prior to this, I've done so many jobs. Um, I've worked in factories. I've done paid political organizing. I've done warehouse work, retail. I mean, if there's like most sectors of employment, I've probably briefly worked there. And basically what happened and how I got into this field to begin with was when I went back to school. So I went back to college, like in my late twenties and I was like, all right, I'm going to get a degree and do all this stuff. And I just was looking for like night shift work so I can go to school during the day, have a job at night and figure it out from there. One of the facilities um, was looking for just like third shift work. So I ended up applying for that, found out I liked it and that was pretty good at it because I think the secret to like working with people, especially people who have behavioral issues, is that if you're pretty calm, you can get a long way with people who are having issues. So I ended up being pretty good at that. And then I ended up sticking around and getting more certificates and all these fancy things. And then five years later, I'm still doing it. Pretty straightforward what the most challenging aspects of my job are. It's dealing with the money and the insurance stuff and the Byzantine networks of how funding works and what you can and can't do. We only provide residential support, which is like a big part of these people's lives because it's where they live. However, like we're not their guardians, so we can't make all the legal decisions for them. 
fortunately, like all the guardians that we work with, we have a really good working relationship with, so it's not too bad. But if we did have a guardian who was like being really difficult, it can make our lives insanely difficult. Also things like simple questions about like how the money's funded, how it all works. Like it all comes from like Medicare and Medicaid. However, there's all these middlemen and other organizations that get their little cut of the pie and they supposedly do stuff and provide services, which I'm not exactly sure what they do other than it seems like they cut checks and they're supposed to provide oversight to the things we're doing. But I don't like how all that funding works. It feels very needlessly complicated. Like also just getting people like reauthorized. So you have people who have like a permanent lifelong impairment in some way, like cognitively or physically. A person with like a severely damaged spine who's unable to walk isn't going to one day wake up and be able to walk. However, every few months you need to call a doctor at the fill up this piece of paper and they're like, this person is still permanently disabled, um, even though there's no chance for recovery with some of these things. But yet every month they have to go through this. And then if you don't do it, then their funding gets cut instantly. It's like a full-time job just to keep these people on the benefits they receive. Like literally we have a whole department that is all they do is they just keep up with all the paperwork. There are some people who do this for like their kids themselves. And I don't know how they do it because this would be so, it's so hard and so time consuming. None of it's as simple as I think it should be. In theory, it's like we're providing service. We should just receive the money and that's it. But no, it doesn't work that way. So everyone's got to get their little cut and everyone has their little fingers and things. And yeah, it's pretty awful. The money stuff, the insurance stuff, it's, it's terrible. That's the worst part about it, frankly. I mean, honestly, anything dealing with like the individuals themselves is a cakewalk compared to just dealing with rep PAEs and all these other people that just can be needlessly awful. And also a lot of them don't quite understand what we're doing. Um, some do, some don't, but it's just a nightmare and it's very stressful. Um, and also the legal stuff is very stressful too. Just like, can you do this? Can you do that? And like, honestly, like you have to be really careful because of course, if you break the law, then you lose your licensure. So when they find out you've done something wrong or not by the book, they'll either find you or take away your licensure. So you can end up through like really small little mistakes, end up costing the organization a lot of money. So you have to like document everything to prove that you're doing what you're doing, even though it's pretty obvious. But if somebody didn't write a note on one day about what they did with this one person, and then someone who's auditing looks over it, they'll be like, oh, I'm going to take all the money for that day because it doesn't seem like you did anything with this person. So with my job, I do actually directly deal with the clients. I'm what's called a QIDP. So I do a lot of the clinical work and a lot of the program and habilitation services. Like I design all the programs for that to teach people skills or to address behavioral needs, things like that. So like I work hands-on with my clients every day. There is a lot of paperwork too, but I'm always around them, always observing them, always interacting with them because ultimately the person who decides what sort of services and programs they're getting ends up being me. That's a large part of my job. So in terms of like workplace hazards, I mean, yeah, sometimes people get violent. It happens. Bites are annoying. Never get bit by another human being. It's a nightmare. You have to get a lot of shots and go to the doctor a bunch. It doesn't happen very much. Most of the people I deal with, they don't have profound violence in them. Otherwise, they'd be somewhere else because we don't do any sort of physical restraints at all, except in like extreme situations. Like if someone's about to run in front of an oncoming bus, we can like tackle them. 
But in terms of daily stuff, like we don't touch our clients at all. Everything we do when people are upset or have behavioral issues, we always use verbal redirection or tell them, hey, let's go somewhere else that's quiet or um, like take people to their rooms or things like that. But we're always there with them, monitoring them. We deal with a lot of drugs, like a lot of psychoactive drugs, a lot of controlled substances. So that's something to always be careful for, mostly for our clients' sake than staff's, just because like some of the medications we deal with are really powerful. And if you don't get the med time right, or if you give someone too much or too little, it could end up really messing somebody up. Not in the facility I've worked at, but in other facilities, it's really common for like people to make med errors that can end up putting people in comas and things like that. And all it takes sometimes is just somebody's just not reading the MAR right, or they overcount, or they're just not paying attention. Sometimes people spit up drugs, and then you're not sure if they took them or not. And that's always a hazardous thing because you're like, well, if they've ingested this, then we can't give them more, but we're not sure if they did or they didn't. So that's always a scary situation. People do spit out medication, and that's a hazard for them because, again, if they're not getting all the meds they should get, then you may see some sort of decline in cognitive ability or say, for instance, people who are schizoaffective or schizophrenic, if they don't get their medication, then they can start hallucinating pretty quickly and have more issues because of that. The way our homes are designed, they are designed like homes, except they have offices in them. So like just normal things to uh, like, especially with clients when they're coming out of an institution, some of them have never seen like a kitchen before, or the last time they saw a kitchen is when they lived with their family when they were like eight years old. So concepts of things like stoves are hot, knives are sharp. Um, actually, some individuals, when they come from big institutions, they end up being really surprised that everything's not bolted down. Because if you go to a big state institution, like picture frames, furniture, everything's bolted to the ground for obvious reasons. So sometimes, like, especially when they first move in, they hit something and they're surprised it shakes and falls down because like they haven't really experienced that that much in their life. It goes two ways. Like some of it's with the staff, some of it's with the clients, especially when you're trying to teach people to like interact in a house and they spent their whole life in institutions where everything's very secure and safe. And there's a cafeteria where like food just shows up. So there's like a lot of just like learning about daily hazards that all of us have picked up on like when we were way younger. So I think one thing to think about when we think about how we treat people with IDD or physical disabilities is like being aware of the history of how all this even came about in terms of like institutions, group homes and everything. I'm thoroughly convinced that if you were to try to right now sit down and create group homes, say group homes didn't exist now, and we're like, hey, we're going to create this thing where we're going to have a bunch of people who have disabilities or cognitive issues or IDD. We'll put them in this home. We're going to give them services. We're going to do this, this, and this. I'm a thousand percent positive that the federal government and the state government will be like, no, that's stupid. We're not doing that. And this really only exists because of like the history of how awful we've treated these people. Like the first laws for really getting people in what we would think of institutions, which back then were called workhouses, were called ugly laws. And basically they were based off of this notion that a person's outward reflection inflected like their inner morality, for lack of a better word. So like if you were aesthetically pleasing, IG like white, blue eyes, blonde, all that, you're probably like a good moral person. However, though, if you had like a cleft palate or you look funny or even like if you were maimed somehow, people would view you as like morally inferior. So they would literally take you off the street and put you in these workhouses. 
And then later on, they started building bigger institutions, like the things we think about more in the movies, these big state institutions with padded walls and all that. And they just pretty much were prisons for the most part. People literally could go their whole life without actually ever being outside. We actually have all these rights for our residents that are all in reaction to things like that, where people have a right to go outside every day. They have the right to refuse to eat because people will be often force-fed. I'm not trying to make these people seem like they're perpetual victims because they're not, but just the way society's treated them, especially the way America's treated people who are not really as capable for a variety of reasons. Even individuals who like could just use a little bit more support to just make through their day. We just don't provide that service. We always expect the family to provide that service. And in a lot of cases, people, especially people with IDD, depending on their family situation, some families are great, other families are not so great. Some individuals have like great natural support to other individuals because they have IDD or like abandoned by their family or are disdained with random family members their whole life until eventually they link up with some sort of social services. Things have gotten a lot better for younger people now with IDD. We're far more sympathetic towards them and far more understanding. But if you look at some of the records from some of these individuals from like the 80s and even the 90s, the things they write about these people are like awful. Especially people who are like non-white. If you were black, Hispanic, anybody else, some of the things like these are psychologists that would write about these people were just awful. They would call people things like cretins. They would like insult their appearance. Um, it's really interesting because a lot of times when you're doing like psych evaluations, you kind of write a narrative of like, oh, little Susie's here. She's wearing a blue dress. She has... She's wandering off into the distance with her gaze, blah, blah, blah. Like it can sometimes get very poetic and they start talking about people's appearance and they call them things like, well, this person is very unattractive. And you're like, you're calling a five-year-old unattractive. That's really gross. Especially for people with IDD, they do segregate people by gender pretty consistently. And there's a lot of reasons for why that is. But also, like a lot of these individuals, especially individuals who have been institutionalized, you can pretty much guarantee whether they're male or female or non-binary, that they've probably experienced some level of sexual violence. And the fact of the matter is like all the women are always on birth control. Um, the reason for that is not so much because they're sexually active or to regulate hormones. It's pretty much just to prevent pregnancy because uh, that happens a lot. Uh, a lot of people who are pretty savory characters, to put it mildly, they gravitate towards this very vulnerable population. And a lot of these individuals are not people who I think a lot of people conventionally think as people who would be sexual abusers. They're often like nurses and doctors, like people who have been in school for a long time, but they know how to like hide in the shadows and they also know how to destroy evidence and things like that. Um, there was actually a case, I think in Arizona a few years back that made big news because there was an individual who they were pretty much bedridden and one of the nurses raped them and impregnated them and they didn't realize that the person was even pregnant until they were giving birth and then they did a genetic test and found out who it was and again it was a nurse who had been there for a very long time so things like that are pretty awful i mean america is like the home of eugenics i mean the only reason why we really stopped doing it as blatantly was because of the nazis they kind of gave it a bad name but i mean had that not happened i think yeah america would have continued with more forced sterilizations I mean, North Carolina was sterilizing people up into the 80s. I've heard this phrase before, and I think even the Nazis use it, where they called people um, 
worthless eaters, basically. This idea that like these people just take up resources that could be better used by, I don't know who, um, I don't know, maybe Jeff Bezos or somebody. So we end up like treating these people like they're a burden to society, that they have no value, that they produce nothing. And politically speaking, like a lot of times when we're talking about advocacy, we're always talking about, we would like more money, please, so we can provide better services. There's some advocacy for more, I guess, recognition of them as people, but that's very minor because a lot of people, frankly, and you see this a lot when you're out in the community with clients, a lot of people either treat them like their children or they like gawk at them or think they're funny. And it's not like these people aren't aware of that. They're not stupid. I think that's like one of the most common thing that a lot of people seem to think about someone with IDD or other cognitive impairments or disabilities, that there's something really wrong with them and like that they're not aware of the world. I mean, they are just because someone maybe cognitively can't read or write or do certain things doesn't mean that they're stupid. It doesn't mean they don't live a rich internal life, even individuals who are nonverbal. Like I work a lot with nonverbal people and even people within the field often assume that they're of lesser intelligence because they're not communicating verbally. And when you think about it, like a lot of our communication is done verbally, but more of it's also done non-verbally as well. And there's a lot of reasons why people wouldn't want to speak. Some people, especially people who are on the spectrum, for whatever reason, they've chosen not to speak. Why that is, it depends on the individual. Some people say it's just really hard. It gives, it's physically painful for them or they just don't want to. But yet, like, because again, they're not verbal, people are like, oh, well, they're just kind of like this empty husk of a person. A big part of what we do, we do try to integrate our individuals into the community as much as possible. But that's also really hard because a lot of places and a lot of groups, like, we'll be calling them and we'll be like, hey, we have this person who's interested in working at, say, like your food bank. And the people at the food bank will be like, oh, we're not babysitters. Don't bring this person here. And other things too, like people will try to join clubs and people will be like, oh, we're not babysitters. Like I get that all the time. And I'm like, oh my God, this person's an adult. They're going to have a staff person there with them. And also like, you know, I'm kind of like, again, part of my French, but like kind of go fuck yourself, frankly. Like this is like so insulting. You're like, we would not be calling you if we didn't think this person could handle this. Like it's really absurd. And frankly, even well-intended people often really view these individuals as just lesser it's kind of hard to develop self-esteem when you're aware of that because all these individuals are. So like a lot of the advocacy for them is just to like recognize that they're like human beings and that they've always existed. People with IDD, people with autism, people with every sort of disability or whatever have been, existed forever. It's not like all of a sudden in like the 1800s, these people just popped up one day. They have always been around. And often what really disables them isn't so much whatever's going on physically with them or even mentally. A lot of the time it's just society. It's kind of like if you're in a wheelchair and everywhere you want to go to has staircases, you're going to be severely impaired with your ability to be free, to have freedom of movement, to do things independently. Oftentimes all they really need are people who are willing to work with them at their pace. And sometimes things take a little bit longer to do, but they're capable of doing it. So a lot of times, because everyone seems to always be in a hurry or always assume that they're not going to do it, they always do things for them or they always assume they can't do things. When in reality, like a lot of these individuals, when you just give them the opportunity to do things for themselves, they'll do it. 
it's kind of hard to like create a political model of that because like basically the way things are set up in America, it's like we're so militantly individualistic. The idea is like everyone should be able to take care of themselves, which is like already an impossibility. We're always interconnected with everything. And it's easier to understand why these individuals may have behavioral issues because again, like a lot of times people are just like, oh, you can't do this, you can't do that. Even like if they're not directly saying that just by doing things for people, like it ends up really affecting them. A lot of the advocacy is only on the money side. A lot of the community stuff is a little bit harder to do because that's more of a cultural thing and changing culture is pretty damn hard. So burnout and compassion fatigue. Yeah, those are pretty big problems, especially in my field, in particular burnout. Most people within my field, like about a year, they work there about a year, then usually they quit. And a lot of times it is just because like it just gets them. You have to be built, I would say, differently to be able to do this for a very long period of time because it is very stressful. You do take a lot of verbal abuse sometimes from the clients and also just the way everything's structured. A lot of the structure can be exhausting to deal with. A lot of things like you want to do something, but you can't for a variety of legal reasons. The nature of the work we do is very slow too. Like when you're trying to build skills for a person, we measure everything in three month intervals and it takes years. So a lot of the times when you're teaching people new skills, running programs, it can burn you out because you're doing the same thing every single day. And yeah, that can be very exhausting. And compassion fatigue is always interesting too. I've always been of two minds about it. I think like, cause I've personally seen some of the most unhealthy people on earth be nurses and doctors. And oftentimes it's just the nature of their job. It's very stressful and things like that. So their coping tools such as they are, are often like, you know, drugs or alcohol or things like that. And I do understand that like myself, I have to engage usually in doing like a lot of rigorous physical activity after work because that just helps a lot with clearing my head and it's also something I like. So I use that as a coping skill. However, though, a lot of the problems, I think, especially people who are more in administrative roles or like, you know, doctors, nurses or things like that, people who have, I would say, can dictate more about what we're doing with these individuals. The stressful part about that is mostly just, again, dealing with the systems and the superstructure and the state and just how terrible insurance agencies are and just how terrible a lot of providers are and just how like awful like the whole system is to deal with. At the end of the day, what your goal is, like you're trying to help these people, you're trying to support these people in living full, rich lives. And a lot of the providers are just awful. They don't really care that much about these individuals. They treat them like lesser people. I've been in doctor's appointments for individuals who have had like diagnoses of cancer and we're discussing treatment options and the cancer doctor is like, well, do you really think we should bother doing anything? Because like, how good is their quality of life anyway? And you're like, wow, you would never say that to anybody else. But yet you'll say that to this individual just because they have IDD. And it's like, yeah, you can say, oh, that's compassion fatigue. But it's also like, it's really hard not to want to rage against the system when you work in a field like this. Not that it's evil, but just how like you can just see that there's a lot of people who are in this just to make money. Like it's profitable for them. They pay their employees minimum wage, yet their administrators make six figures. And I think that contributes a lot to just like getting sick of it all. Like I wouldn't call it as much con 
passion fatigue or even burnout is just it kind of feels like sometimes like you're banging your head against the wall perpetually and you're not getting through and also the system's not letting you get through it's almost designed to be purposely harsh and difficult to deal with and i don't know if it's by design or by coincidence and that's why like a lot of people end up leaving like a lot of the administrators who are really good end up leaving just because they're like i'm just tired of this i'm tired of making the same phone calls i'm tired of dealing with the same problems day in and day out so like you have to be built in a certain mindset to deal with like a lot of bullshit frankly a lot of people anytime when they're doing like human services or care work usually they're very empathetic they're people who like really care a lot they want to do good they're very motivated and then when like you realize like all the other stuff that you never knew that you had to deal with all this is the real stuff you do like your real job isn't so much like I'm building a skill with this person. It's like, no, a lot of it's like documenting everything, writing all these notes, making sure you do things exactly as the state wants. And some of them are so absurd. Some of the regulation and rules, like there are things like how you serve food. They will audit that. They will look at you and they'll be like, oh, you didn't do this the way you're supposed to do that. And you know, a lot of people who write these rules and regulations have never worked in the field. They have these consulting agencies come in and you can tell that the people who do these consulting, who have astronomical fees of hundreds of thousands of dollars, you can tell that these are people who are often most likely like cis white males who are just out of these fancy Ivy League schools who are just looking at numbers and have no idea about anything that actually goes on. Since a lot of what we do isn't like easily quantifiable, like there's some programs where there's some data, but like it's kind of really hard to quantify over like a period of years, like this individual was at this one place when they first came in and started receiving services. Now they're able to do all this and they're far more stable and they're blah, blah, blah. Like that's really hard because that's something that can only really be noticed through observation. But yeah, like all that really does get to you after a while. And it's kind of hard to deal with that. For me, it's kind of interesting because like if I would say out in a bar and someone like insulted me for no reason, I'd be like, whoa, what are you doing here? This is not cool. But when it happens at work, I'm just kind of like, oh, okay, well, someone's having a bad day. So having that mindset of being able to not take things personally and view them as a part of a symptom of a behavior or a part of some sort of mental health thing or something like that, being able to differentiate like your social interactions. Some of the things that people say about me and some of the things that people have tried to do to me, like it doesn't bother me because I'm like, oh. I know you're not doing this just to be a jerk. You're doing this because this is a symptom of whatever underlying issue you have. You can't let things bother you. Like when I clock out, unless there's like a crisis that's lingering, I don't really think about my work that much. I don't go home and like talk about it to really anybody other than like in the vaguest of terms. Because again, like once I'm not working, I'm like, I'm done. And being able to do that is absolutely essential because this type of work dealing with humans will eat at you. Like you have to be able to clock out mentally, which is not a skill a lot of people have. When you have physical fatigue, it's usually really obvious, like you're sweaty, you're sore. But when you start experiencing like mental fatigue, oftentimes people are really good at repressing that until they reach a point where they can't and then they snap or they lash out. So being able to like know that about yourself, know your limits, know when you're like, well, I've been working too much. I need some time off. I need to like take care of my mental health one way or the other. That's a really important skill to have. And that's like something that only, you know, you can't lose your sense of empathy. 
um, longer you do this, the easier it is. And I guess it's being a little poetic here, but you're like your soul can almost get hardened because again, you're like, you're just clocking in, clocking out. You're doing the bare minimum after a while. Like you can just end up being a paper pusher. So you see people who have been doing this job and work in this field for 20 years who are like so set in their ways. And they're like, Oh, this is the way we've always done it. And they're so hostile to new ideas and things like that. Also like always being like interested in what you're actually doing, like being invested to some degree, but not overtly invested to the point where like, it's all you think about. It's your whole life. My thoughts and dreams and future, like I'm probably going to end up doing this for, I don't know, until I don't want to do it anymore. I don't know if that, that could be forever. Potentially. I have no idea. I do like this work. I do feel like for whatever reason, like I just, my personality, whatever it is, like I feel uniquely suited for dealing with what I'm dealing with and it's nice and I like it and I'm probably going to keep doing it till I get sick of it. But the funny thing is like when I think about like fantasize about my future and things I want to do, very little of that has to deal with work. Honestly, like there's much more things I find way more interesting than like, how am I going to draw income? Obviously it's a necessity because we all got to work. We got to pay bills and things like that. But like, I'm far more interested in what I can do with the money I have and doing other things outside of work. Like I've always had this big vision of building intentional communities for individuals with cognitive issues and other people who have like nowhere else to go. That's like nice. That would probably be the one thing that would cause me to leave where I'm at now. But also that's something I can do where I'm doing now. Like we already do residential support. So why can't we do intentional communities and things like that. I mean, honestly, like for me, I'm not that interested in the work aspect of work. I'm more interested in building the community and getting these individuals into like the best possible situation for them. However, that works out. I don't know if there's like a job where you do that. It's just something like I'm in a unique position where I work for a nonprofit, where I have the opportunity to maybe do that. So I'm going to stick around and try to do that. I don't know. Like, I'm lucky because the actual job I do like feels like it actually is doing something good. Yeah. It's a very unique and weird situation I'm in, but I like it. And until I stop liking it, I'm going to stick around basically. Mm -hmm.